Hi, this is Ben Horner. I'm the producer, writer, editor, everythinger for the Goodwin Sounds Radiogram. Back in February of this year, 2019, we did another live show as part of the Free Range Arts and Music event series in Canterbury, and this is the show that you're about to hear. I've cut the long uh, live intro that I did to condense the show down a bit. It's about an hour long. It's very long for the radiogram, so instead you just have to put up with me waffling here for, I don't know, a minute or something instead. As before, the program was already edited and loaded into a software sequencer to be live-triggered for the audience at the venue. We then had two improvising musicians, this time Sam Bailey on the piano, Oliver Perrett-Webb on the guitar, uh, ready to respond to the interviews and improvised music that they felt was suitable. They didn't have access to the material beforehand, nor any idea of the subject matter. What you hear is the live result of their improvisational skill. I did offer some guidance to, as to uh, when to play or to be silent using some cue cards that I made up which were also handy to cue in a couple of little pre-prepared tunes that we'd organised and the audience shouting at Sarah, you'll hear that when we get to it. With them as always was the excellent Peter Kelly as the announcer performing his role live and another special guest called Adam Hilmy. Adam's a music producer who has worked with Amy Winehouse and Pete Doherty, but at the moment he's doing his PhD in radiophonic sound, which is the, the, the sound of detuned radio, the stuff of radio, the hiss and static. Um, he's built computer software and interfaces to generate and manipulate this sound and to bend it to his command. Every flash of radio static you hear on this program is played live by Adam, uh, and to be honest, I was really fascinated with his work and I'd like to do more with him in the future. Before we listen, in a first for the programme, a warning. This particular show contains very strong language right from the beginning and throughout, as well as frank discussion of psychotropic drug use. If this isn't for you, or if there are um, kids around, perhaps skip this one. Here we go. Thank you, Milo, in the background. Thank you for coming, everybody. Should we do a show? Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? No, they, you weren't there. How do you know that then? I watched that Do you know what? I was over there four years. I looked around and never seen you fucking once. I've watched the programmes <laughs> every week. Their commodity yeah. bills and everything else is... You're talking about now. Yes. Yeah. We're in the EU now and everything's fucking dear. And they're not in the EU, right? they got more sheep than I can shit on, right? It's cheap over there. Hey, I went over there... And the first thing they put was a steak that fucking big. A T-bone steak. It filled the plate. I thought, fuck, I'd never seen a steak that big. T-bone steak. We all went out and all we, we gouged ourselves on T-bone steaks. And they were about 50 fucking P. Sunnyside now. Australia, a great place for families. 
Opportunity for you. Fine for your wife. Great for your children. You could be on your way to a sunnier future in the new year. On your way to Australia. A great place for families. Send for this free wallet of information. You'll find a coupon in this week's local TV paper. It was on the papers everywhere. There was even a, a seminar in Bournemouth Town Hall. Big advertisement, you know, go to Australia. I, I, I was so young then because I was um, still only 17 and I weren't even allowed to go to Australia without obviously my parents saying I could go. But because I've always been a very self-reliant person, I've never, that's why I've never been on the dole and all that. I'm, I'm, I rely on myself, I don't rely on anyone else, I rely on myself. And I still probably don't understand properly. People that don't rely on themselves are always putting their hand out, hand outs, and I don't need to do that. I just stand on my own two feet. And I was like that from a young age, always. And my dad knew that. And so when I was 17, and I said, I'll go to Australia, he said, I've got no worries about you. I'll sign the papers. No problem. I know you'll look after yourself. My dad used to say he suffered from fear. Making a decision that changed your life was... Probably more, it's always still difficult now, but it's probably more even more difficult then. If you had nothing and you made a wrong move, you had minus nothing. So he didn't want to do the, the thing. But me, I had nothing. I thought I got nothing to lose. I got nothing anyway. So I just well go. So it's still a little bit of emotional now, really. You know, um, leaving your family when you think about it. It's 17. Welcome again to the Goodwin Sands Radiogram, our battered and rusty old tub of tranquil reflection amid the rough seas of the English Channel. Thanks to the success of last year's live programme, we have once again been invited ashore to entertain a select group of radio enthusiasts and national and international celebrities here at Free Range in beautiful Canterbury. Just to prove it, our august band of distinguished followers will now greet you with a cheery hello. Hello! And it's all aboard and chucks away. In this episode, we will be discussing all things travelling, voyages and adventures, physical, spiritual, and even metaphor-diagrammical in nature. So there's a man sitting there, his face is made of wood. And then I looked at the next man and he had um, just multicolored lasers coming out of his face as though he had a uh, fiber optic uh, Christmas tree or something in his skin. And then the next person had, in real time, had multicolored games of noughts and crosses being played on his face in crayon like as if kids were playing but you couldn't see the kids you could just see the, the game on their face and then I'd look back at the first guy and his face was still made of wood and then look back at the other guy and he still had the noughts and crosses but they'd advanced it's like they'd been playing it still while I was looking away and I remember somebody in there said to me um, something like so what do you do for a living and I just said I'm really sorry I'm having the most extraordinary hallucinations right now there's no way I can tell you what I do for a living <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous question and looked out the front of this van and there was an airport out the front of it and I could see things landing and then looked back at the guy whose face was made of wood who was looking for a 
mustard tin that had his cocaine in it and he kept, it was high up, in a high up cupboard and he was standing on a box that didn't quite hold his weight and he couldn't reach the back of the cupboard and there were three different tins there and one of them, only one of them was the one he wanted. Everybody's very confused in this van. I look back out the window and now there's a factory out there with smoke billowing out of chimneys and um, it, it really was just the most beautifully calm experience that wasn't alarming or anything it was just uh just very very pleasant and really really entertaining and it was like everything i looked at just made me think wow this is really really nice really good uh i'll be called sam uh yes my name's sam what do I like? Well, my favourite at the moment is Magic Mushrooms. Um, they are... They just give me the most exciting experience that I think I've ever had. They can be really, really profound and feel quite spiritual. Magic Mushrooms make things very symbolic and they seem to encourage... Um, like really crazy coincidences to occur and very unlikely sort of happy um, moments just just happen to happen. My name's Colin Stokes and I went out to Australia as a £10 pawn. The government would employ the private company to recruit youngsters to go to Australia so and mostly boys so there's a big brother brother boys so it's like getting young men to go to Australia from this country or whatever so um, then the big brother movement they would pay the 10 pound which they could afford to because the government employed them so basically it was free from the government so it didn't want to cost 10 pound at all it cost nothing my parents uh, put me on the plane with Michello, I took Michello with me, went on the plane, went out to Australia. Hello, my name's Dave. I'm a gardener. Uh, for 35 years and uh, I spent the last two years traveling um, looking for um, something else. Well I'm a traditional gardener that's what I call myself. Um, in the modern world that that sort of line of work is diminishing a little bit um, because obviously um, modern methods and um, contractors um, and the, uh, uh, the expense of having a, the luxury of a garden um, is getting rarer and rarer. Um, um, but that's how I describe myself. Um, uh, a husbandman, if you like, um, uh, a nurturer of plants. Um, obviously, uh, you're in the um, flow of the seasons, so uh, the, the seasons offer different tasks at different times of the year. And um, within within those uh, uh, those those times, um, there's always different jobs 
required, you know, whether it's machinery, um, whether it's um, pruning, weeding, digging, growing something, nurturing something, feeding something, um, endless, endless all, all really. I have been a gardener for 35 years, I think, um, 25 uh, just outside Eastry. Um, and uh, I raised my family there. Uh, we lived organically, so we grew um, everything we could. Um, we pickled, we had chickens, we had pigs at one point, uh, we smoked bacon, um, any, any um, avenue that enabled um, us to live free from the world around us. Um, well, the value of that is um, um, to give one, um, when one has to stand on one's own in life, uh, the choices to choose. Um, the choices to choose are very important because uh, um, if, for example, um, you, there is a reliance on many things around one, um, then uh, uh, one doesn't have to choose um, or, or, or direct oneself um, to create anything from a situation. It's, it's supplied, it arrives. That's how I describe the, the choices to choose. If it, it's a snowball effect, one, when it, one is independent and chooses um, one's direction, um, the, 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 this it, it snowballs and the effect is applied in just about every walk of life. Really. first impression of Australia was it was a wonderful place to be, it was sunshine, it was clean. You know, when you first go there, the first couple of weeks finding my way around, I'd go on the Manly Ferry, that was take you from one side of Sydney Harbour to the other and go to Manly and all that, and you'd have a good look round, that's just fine. You know, I went to an island called Shark Island, I think it's still, you know. Seafood in Australia is brilliant, you know. I mean, they're prawns as big as my freaking hand, you know, they're prawns, you know. <laughs> they're, Wonderful food out there, wonderful steaks and all the rest of it, and fresh fruit and salads and all that. It was the food was brilliant out there. I mean, I ended up getting a job after um, about a month, about a month, I think three weeks even. I had to get there and settle, go there and find my way around. I got a job and um, I ended up doing the floor show lights for the BGs. That's, that's how it was. It was the Oceanic Hotel in Coogee. Coogee is near Randwick, was part of Randwick. And Randwick is where the race course is in Sydney. So you've got Sydney race course, Randwick, down the beach area is called Coogee. I'm in Coogee. I was only there about three weeks, got a job, and a trainee hotel manager. The cello thing didn't work out in Australia because in 1966 or thereabouts, 66, yeah, it was 66, um, of course, the beat was in full. You know, everyone had a guitar or a set of freaking drums, you know what I mean? And then I went long before I made a good friend called George Love. That was his name, George Love. And he had a mini. And he used to come and pick me up. And then we'd go out together and, you know, 
he'd pick up a few girls or something just to talk to. It was not like it, nothing seed or anything, just pick up girls, take girls out, stuff like that, like girlfriends, you know, used to do that type of thing. So I had a good mate out there, but then because I was out there, my parents wanted to come out and it actually altered everything. Yes, you can move 12,000 miles away just for a change of scenery or climate or even of heart. But that may not be for everyone, and some people's idea of adventure are definitely more than a little off the beaten track. And indeed, what manner of experience lies in wait for those looking for new horizons and sensations without leaving their living rooms? It may be that what you are looking for is right in front of you all the time, and you only need a little push to propel you through the doors of perception. Here is part of an interview with the subject just before LSD is to be administered. My husband is an employee here at the VA, and he told me that they were looking for normal people, and uh, I volunteered. I see. Uh, do you feel you're normal? <laughs> I hope I'm normal. I, I think so. Well, uh, a little while back, you took uh, quite a series of psychological... So, they don't taste very nice. Uh, normally you make tea, just by adding them to hot water. Add lemon juice, because that turns the psilocybin into psilocybin, which is the drug. Um, and the lemon juice does that for you instead of your digestive system having to do it so you come up quicker um, you, when you start feeling the effects you just become quite giggly and you kind of think oh I think they're working and then you think oh I just thought I think they're working and your brain starts thinking almost behind your head and while you're kind of saying looking around feels it's working normal and then you think but then if I you try and do something um, for example I might go and play a piano or draw a map of a place I've been then suddenly you realise that all your ordinary understanding and ability of stuff is suddenly just very different just very I wouldn't different, say better different. or worse but um, like drawing a picture it, it will come out in a way that you really really didn't expect that you don't quite recognise it as your own handiwork um, uh, took some couple of months ago and went and played the piano as I was coming up and I was watching my fingers and thinking this is really interesting because it sounds very much like I'm very good at the piano but I know I'm not and I, I'm pretty sure that I was quite good at the piano then um, but most distractingly was watching my hands because they had these yellow lights coming out of each finger and the piano keys had newsprint all over them and I looked up and there was kind of uh, sort of transparent pink candy floss coming out of the top of the piano and then I would look around at, uh, at the people in the room and they, their faces would be stretched sideways and swirling into this kind of like being sucked into a vortex and then you obviously just know yes I have come up now and we're in for a little treat for the next couple of hours
I love playing. I just sometimes I walk past the piano, I walk past the room, and I just have to go in and just play the keys, just like that, because I just have this like urge to to play. And I don't really, I don't even sit down. I don't even use any sheet music. I just play. Um, and you know, it's just just playing with the keys really more than anything. But somehow or other, I'm quite surprised that that actually it does always sound quite nice. <laughs> and I didn't expect that. Um, I think the most bizarre thing that ever happened to me when I was playing was that uh, I was playing um, and I was just nonchalantly just playing away, looking at my sheet music. It wasn't anything particularly complicated because I'm not of that standard. But um, I noticed that I just couldn't physically play the piece anymore. And I was trying to figure out why that was. And I couldn't really figure it out for like quite a few seconds. It seemed quite a long time. Um, and I noticed that actually my left hand was playing the right hand and my right hand was playing the left hand. So somehow or other, in the point of playing this, and it, I wasn't meant to, it wasn't in the music, uh, my hands are crossed over, played very nicely the different parts. And it wasn't until that actually physically became a problem <laughs> and that I noticed that. It was just the weirdest thing ever. Uh, I like pretty much Anything, as long as there are no discords in it, I cannot stand anything physically. It makes me cringe. It makes me feel ill. So, yes, whatever it is, it just can't have discords in it. As I said, I sponsored my parents to go out. And um, it was good in one way, but bad in another. So I'm thinking I'm sponsoring my mum and dad. And then my brother, with his wife, who's not his wife yet, is thinking, all right, we're missing out here. And said, so, well, I want to go. She said, well, I'm not going with you unless you marry me. See? So in the end, she blackmailed him and they got married. All right? Which worked out well, because they were married about 50 years. So it doesn't matter, you know, it worked out right. I didn't know any of this. This might have been going on without me knowing, because I was in Australia. It was about three weeks before they were due to come out and I sponsored them to come out and I got the, everything sorted out. Next thing you know, three weeks before, my brother's coming with a wife. But by which time, I'd only got a one-bedroom flat for them. But, so I got them the flat, thinking they're coming to the flat, and I'll see them on the weekends, this, that and the other, and I got him a job and all that. Well, my brother turned up. I couldn't alter the flat. He signed up and everything, paid deposit and everything. So there was a put, put you up in there, you know, like a um, sofa bed. So they end up four room in this freaking flat, which didn't really work out that well with one bathroom and two couples in there. And that sort of ruined it a bit, you know. He was worse than ever homesick. He was worse than ever homesickness, you know. And although it was lovely out there and, and, you know, the wages were good and the place was lovely and, you know, palm trees, sunshine. And I remember one thing he said to me, I just you can't live on sunshine and palm trees. That's, you know, when he was depressed, because he think he missed home, you know. Well, the, the connection is nature. Um, and uh, uh, we are still nature. 
however devoid of it, um, uh, it's innate within us all, and um, uh, there is nothing more meditative than being within it um, and, and having it uh, affect one uh, at close quarters. You know, at the moment, especially uh, with many people moving to the country, um, I think it's innate within us all, um, and it can create. Um, uh, a strange reaction, I think, when people cannot respond to that calling. Um, say, if they are um, deep within a city and they can't move out. Um, I, I, I've always been a boy in nature and uh, always been a bit of a boy, really. Um, I wanted to go further into nature, um, so I decided to backpack and um, I carried a tent and just just what I could carry, really. Um, and then and wild camped, looking for, in England and Wales and Scotland, um, places where nature still existed without man, but it's very difficult to find. Existing as man does in nature, with all its giant forces and apparent caprices, it's not surprising that, like our forefathers for millennia, many people believe we are mere creatures of a higher power, or even an array of higher powers, mighty cosmic puppeteers to whom we all belong and who shape our futures. And when an opportunity one day arrives at our door, we may thank Dame Fortune or Lady Luck and want to share it immediately. But sometimes we must be careful with whom we share it, especially when family members offer to lend a hand. And I, I would say I describe it sort of, um, although I don't like the book very much, as a Alice in Wonderland kind of feeling. So um, I felt incredibly small and I felt that everybody around me and everything around me was huge. They were all really big, and things were really, things were really big, and um, and I was tiny, and it was just really overwhelming. And that feeling was just the most bizarre thing. I suppose it's it's sort of it's a bit like photography. You were there and you take everything in and you, in the case of photography, you even take a picture, but you're not actually part of what's going on. You're just an observer. And it was like everything I looked at just made me think, wow, this is really, really nice, really good. It's really difficult to get back into, it's really difficult to explain what it's like when you're not in that state. A waking dream state sounds very much like how I describe it to myself while it's happening. Um, it was the sort of dream that you'd wake up and say to someone, God, I had this dream that we were in a bar and then all of a sudden we went under a fence and we were lying on a hedge and then all of a sudden we were stuck in a building site and then we were home and it was... It's like you get these little... They must be 
fairly long periods of time that seem irrelevant and are missing from the story. Um, and yeah, in that sense, it's very much like a dream state. But you get to choose what you're doing in it. That's really good. For me, I just think that it's not about the instrument, it's about how it's played and what's playing it. So really everything's the fault of composers, absolutely everything. Composers are to blame for just about everything, that and Thatcher. We're going to talk about things I hate, and thank you. Um, the Saxophone solo in Spandau Ballet's um, True. It's the most. It's the most out of tune, most awful piece of shit I've ever heard coming out the end of an instrument. And that includes a world that exists with. Um, what's his name? That bloody awful bloke. What's his name? Oh. Who's that Irish singer who did Brown Eyed Girl? What's his name? Van Morrison. Van Morrison likes to play alto saxophone on all of his pieces. And, and, and no one's got the balls to say, Van, you sound like shit, mate. His alto saxophone playing, along with David Bowie's, was absolutely bloody awful. And yet, the, I mean, if you listen to it, it's just unbearable. And yet even they aren't out-badded, out-shitted by the saxophone solo in True. It's just... I'm Sarah Brand. I'm a trombone player. I'm doing a PhD. I'm a lecturer in music and improvisation. Uh, I started the trombone when I was seven. So I've been playing it for 41 years. Um, and I started at junior school because uh, everyone was asked to do a music test. On, they played a gramophone record and we had to identify certain sounds and pitches and stuff like that and I got 100% and so if you did well on these tests you got to choose an instrument so I was taken around all the instruments which in the biography of my film will be a, uh, will be a hilarious montage of me being shoved a cello and going no and you know a piano and, which I did learn a bit but so I was shown around, and I actually like the trumpet, and then this, this spoiled little cow called Fiona Goulder, if you're listening, Fiona, uh, said, I want to play the trumpet. So they gave it to her, because she really screamed and screamed. And I was given the trombone. Okay. And she gave up about two months later. And I almost gave up when I took my took a school trombone home for Easter holiday. My granddad, bless him decided that there was a bend in the tubing and where the trombone lies across the shoulder there's a slight bend a bend in the in the in the bend in the pipe work if you like to accommodate a, a smooth resting place for the for the trombone on the shoulder my granddad didn't know this and got a hammer and tried to hammer it straight <laughs> so, <laughs> oh god it was hilarious I first tried 
uh, marijuana when I was 15. Sounds about right. Uh, some friends at school had discovered it and they told me that I would be great if I was stoned. They said, you'd be very entertaining stoned. And being the impressionable 15-year-old that I was, I went, oh, okay. And they said, well, we're getting some tonight. Do you want to come and meet us? And I said, well, I've got to go to my friend's house after, but yeah, okay. And I'd been drunk maybe twice then, and I thought it's probably a bit like being drunk. Um, So I went and met these lads and we went in a car park and we did what's called a lung it's a large two litre bottle full of pure hashed smoke and I had two of those and then went okay off to my friend's house now see ya I left them there and walked off to my friend's house I was walking home it's maybe a 20 minute walk and it's just outside the house and on the way there I was thinking um, and I happened to look down I don't really think it's had any effect and I noticed but I was a little bit worried because I was sure someone was following me that I couldn't see all of the grass blades and I looked behind and there was nobody there um and I thought it was most peculiar and I looked down and I was like, I'm definitely being followed because I can hear their footsteps and my feet don't even touch the ground when I walk there. They sort of stop two inches above the ground, so it can't be mine. And watched my feet thinking, that's really cool. I've never noticed that I don't touch the ground when I walk before. Um, at the time, I just thought it was really curious. Yeah, it was really weird. I was trying to explain it to somebody how it felt or what the view was like and... I can only sort of, the best thing I could come up with was that it was like if you take a piece of cling film and you scrunch parts of it up and parts of it are clear and you look through that and that's kind of what you get. And then the next thing I knew I was at my friend's front door with his parents so I must have bumped into them on the way and chatted to them perhaps or just walked silently ghost-like next to them on the way and I suddenly realized I couldn't feel the ground under my feet it just it the my the ground felt really spongy under my feet it was most bizarre and uh, that feeling continued over the next few weeks and I haven't really felt my feet since. So uh, the travelling was a sort of uh, a learning curve to, to see the world around me from a different viewpoint. And the viewpoint was um, not from society, you know. I, I left society. Um, I left money. Um, I had no benefits. I, I ran out of money um, quite quickly and panicked. <laughs> Wanted to steal, um, but I didn't, which was good. And so I started to make um, walking sticks and stars and started making just the odd few pounds to to get by on and that was the best money I've earned in, in all my life I think you know um, I learnt um, that, uh, that we are close to nature um, this is what I seeked 
in order to um, um, to find that uh, you know this, this connection was there, um, I seem to have been letting go of, of things that was stopping that, which was obviously uh, um, being in a house, paying the bills and requirements. Um, so I I I, I learned the. Uh, the truth of my independence, really, um, and you have to step away from money to do that. Money is um, it's a covering aspect to our thoughts, if, if that makes any sense. I, my brother was fidgety out there and didn't settle, which was, a, I think, made my dad more homesick and um, unsettled. If I'd have got my dad and my mother out there on my own, I think it'd have been all right. But because he was unsettled, he was the one that was always unsettled, really. You know, and all he wanted to do was save and go without to save out there. If you eat bread and jam, go without. Anyone can save if they want to do it, and that's what he did. And he came home with a boatload of money that he'd worked. He would work. He was always a worker in our family. We all worked. He would work 16 hours days. And he worked glazing, and he'd do a night shift job, cleaning buses or something, and go back glazing the next day. He would work eight hours, have a rest, work eight hours, have a rest. He worked and worked and worked. But when he left Australia, come back and bought a house. Well, if he'd have stayed in this country at that time, people didn't buy their own houses like they do now. In the, in the 60s, it was a new phenomena type thing where you bought more and more people bought their own houses. It was, it was you know, coming on. But you had to have the money, you know, so he, he saved a lot of money while he was in Australia. In two years, he saved his fare to come back and had a deposit for a house and away. But for that, though, he had a miserable time at time because he was working 16-hour days and all the rest of it and living on not good food, you know, like cheap food, beans on toast type thing, you know. I think they ate all right, but, you know, but they give themselves a miserable time, I think. He, he just moaned every day towards the end, you know, oh, I want to go home, I want to go home. I said, if you want to go home, go home. And once he had the money, then he just bought tickets. To go After two years, yeah, you know. But to abandon a situation when once pursued and cherished need not necessarily be a sign of mere fickleness or lack of resolve or worse. It may be more a realisation that one's intentions and expectations of life, oneself and others, are not always matched to reality. So we should take care when judging others in this regard. Walking the proverbial mile in another's shoes can be a chastening experience, not easily forgotten, and in some cases strong enough to last a lifetime. What, what, I rem what I remember is the boredom and the sheer sort of John Cleese type knee-biting frustration and anger that you go through when you're travelling around the world with an instrument. I went to Oslo twice a couple of years ago, in, uh, twice in a space of about two months. And the first gig, I was very well paid, it was part of the, the jazz festival in Oslo, which is a big big jazz festival and I was playing out there. So it was, you know, decent playing and no arguments over flights or, you know. And uh, the second, and I, you know, we got on the plane, I was able to take my instrument on the plane. 
In fact, I was I bought a ticket to sit for the trombone next to me, so that was all fine, which I, I tried to do anyway. Uh, and then I just glided back to the UK, you know, sort of strutted around Heathrow like I owned the joint. And then the next time, it was a slightly lower key event, and um, went on a uh, had to. I also bought a ticket on a slightly cheaper airline for both seats for me and the trombone, and got treated like a terrorist basically. And it was like, what are you doing with it? You can't go on this plane. I was like, I've got a ticket for my trombone, and no, you can't go on there with that. So I've got a ticket for my trombone. We won't allow that on the plane. It's hollow metal. Can you tell me what about it? And I just, oh, I'm not joking. And I just about made the flight. They swabbed my entire instrument to make sure that I didn't have any drugs hidden in the instrument. And I said, look at me, do I look like a drug addict? You know, look at me, do I look like I can afford drugs? Can you see it? It's right here in front of me right now. Watch. No. Good heavens. You know what went through me? It passed right through me. Could you feel it? I would. It was, I would. Me? I wasn't any me. Depending who I'm with, I'm quite ashamed that I'm that I like drugs so much, um, but not to any extent that I would stop using them. Just that some people that I don't talk about them with. <clears throat> Certainly, people who I work for, um, people who might expect a certain uh, kind of responsibility from me. I try and keep it very separate. I think there is a social stigma. There is, um, I've experienced problems at work because of it. Um, you know, being sort of sidelined. Um, but as I've grown older, I mean, I'm nearly 40. And these days I care less about what people think. Uh, being forced out because you're taking too much time off. And that was, that's an interesting experience that I don't necessarily want to make again, but it happened. As far as social stigma goes, I mean... I feel... I do feel a bit like an outcast in a way, because of the word disability. Um, to the extent that for the first, I don't know, about 10 years or so, especially the first few years after diagnosis, I went all out to not look like I was ill. Um, you know, I made sure I went to the gym. I had, you know, if I looked pale, I would get makeup on, all of those things. So people would generally not know, know that I was not well. And for me, that was one of the most important things to do because I had this overriding, and I still do, I this wish that people do not look at me and say, oh, there is the woman with, you know, the illness, there's the woman with the disability, there's the woman who's not well. I want them to see me and say, oh, like, there's Madeline. 
I know her, she's really funny and she's smart and she's kind and that's what, you know, that's what I want them to think about and I don't want the sympathy. I don't want people looking at me with the head to one side and going, and how are you doing? Or worse still, they ask somebody else how I'm doing. It's getting increasingly harder over the years. Because, you know, it's the illness has taken more and more of its toll. I um, felt an extreme, I had an extreme problem with applying for uh, things like um, benefits and a blue badge. And it wasn't until my GP at the time said, you ought not to feel like that. Because, you know, you need that and you're not you're not using your illness to get anything out of anything for free or having an easy ride he said this you're having this because you need it so yeah but yeah it was a great social stigma and I had my blue badge in my car for about three months before I actually used it I suppose it comes the my I mean I don't know if I've talked about this before but I suppose it's to do with the fact that I train music therapists at Guildhall I, I teach jazz there as well but I have trained music therapists there for a very long time and at one point I mean I haven't always had this belief I think it's very developed over the last 16-17 years yes I qualified as a music therapist 19 oh my god 19 years ago and then started almost immediately training on the course. And the one thing I heard people say a lot was my journey. And I was asked about my journey. What's your journey? And at the time I lived in, um, I lived in Stoke Newton, so I'd tell them literally what my journey was and what bus I got. And, what... and people would say, no, 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 your journey. I'm going, no, that's my journey. I leave my flat, you know, I'm in ha- and it's like, yes, but you're, what's your, what's your, and I'd say, what kind of journey do you mean? And they say, well, what's happened to you? I'm like, thank you, thank you. The emotional process I've gone through and experienced as a result of training, you mean? Yes. Well, why don't you say that? And people would sort of look at me as if I wasn't very well. It's the couch confessional. It's all about rationalising and making sense of your world because we have the, in the West, we have the luxury to do so. I would imagine if you find yourself in a in a, in a camp in somewhere on the um, Afghanistan border, you know, of some poor refugees who've got absolutely nothing left of their previous lives, and say, "What's your emotional journey?" They're not caring. They're thinking about how they're going to make it till the next day. Their emotional world is extremely difficult their experiences have been unimaginable uh, probably so unimaginable they can't even think about it which in itself is damaging which they need help with but the survivalist instinct kicks in before the emotion and, and, and you just emotionally cope how and I only say all these things working as a music therapist I've worked with people who've been traumatized and their main way of coping with the trauma that they've been through is to compartmentalize it and not deal with it and just cope with getting on with the day or getting on with the life that they're living 
but that inevitably the emotional trauma wears them down to a point and that's when they end up breaking that's when they end up in some sort of therapy It's very difficult to compare one's own reality to somebody else's because everybody has their, their own reality and people don't generally talk about what their reality is. Um, so they, they, I mean, there may very well be people out there who have got exactly the same feelings. It's just uh, <clears throat> most people wouldn't talk about it because it seems a bit weird. And, you know, there are only very few people you would actually tell that to. <laughs> This started very kind of abruptly and I just thought, I literally thought I'd got something in my eye and I thought it felt a bit like there was a kind of a film on it. So I thought, oh, maybe I've got some face cream or something in my eye, you know, um, and I thought, well, it'll go and I didn't sort of pay much attention to it and then it, it sort of, it didn't seem to disappear and then I just booked myself an appointment with the doctor and got seen and fairly quickly for a change. It was terribly disorientating and I didn't really sort of realize how bad it was really until I had another eye test and um, I was shown a small bottle of something or other and I looked at that with my bad eye and I said she said what color is and I said oh I sort of the bottom is kind of gray and the top is kind of dark gray and she said, now look at it with the other eye. And it turned out that the, the, the bottom half of that bottle was actually white and the top half was red. I certainly am somebody else to who I was before the diagnosis. Yeah, I would say that because, well, you cannot, I guess. Something like that has to change you. But then, so a lot of other things that happen to people, um, it's just as long as it's significant enough, I suppose. Uh, and most of the time that you will remember something changed you, I think it's if something, to generalize it, something bad has happened. If something good has happened, most people, I think, don't really take note of how it's changed them. But I think if something bad's happened, then people will take more notice. Uh, and I include myself in that. Such a journey um, puts one in circumstance, if you like. So I, I tend not to um, look to the future too much. Um, you stay in the day as much as possible. Um, and let circumstance govern it. Certainly, a lot happier, and I, I feel I've um, I've grown away from needs. Um, that was part of the journey, um, leaving stuff, as I call it. Um, we don't need stuff. Um, there's uh, practical things uh, are good, um, but they need to be used to be practical. If they're practical and they stay in a corner. They become stuff. Um, so it was nice to let go of even things that were close to me that obviously I couldn't carry. So they became stuff and they were unnecessary. Um, 
and once they were gone, um, I found that I could let go of such things quite easily. The future um, can be full of regrets, so I tend to, uh, uh, or full of worries rather. The past can be full of regrets, so one one stays in the in the now as much as possible, um, and um, that's where nature sits. journey's end. Every journey, long or short, must have one, as indeed must ours in this programme very soon. But as we've heard, it may not always end at the intended destination, and for some travellers it will end right back where it began, be it a place, a relationship, a job, or simply a state of mind. Perhaps the gravitational pull of the familiar and safe will prove too strong to resist, or maybe the call of duty will bring them home. For some, their odyssey will end in failure and regret, and others may simply find that true happiness for them lies, as the old song says, back in your own backyard. But every journey, whatever its direction, outward, onward, or return, carries the traveller forward in life, into the future, the great unknown. We are all on our own individual journey. And wherever we may think we're headed, we never know what's over the horizon or around the corner until we get there. You had to stay there for two years or pay your fare that it cost you to go out. Well, I was there the best part of four years, a couple of months short, but about four years. But my parents came out, stayed two years and went back. Because I didn't want to go home. They all wanted to go home. I don't want to go home. And I thought, I don't want to stay here on my own now. And uh, so I'll just do a bit more travelling. So I got on this bus eventually to go across the Nullabar Plain. You get on the, the Greyhound. It's called a Greyhound bus. And there was a place where I remember we stopped. I think it was called Sejuna. And all that was was a tin shack. I think there's a bit more there now, but not much more, but there's a bit more there now. And uh, that, was, that was all it was. It was just go there to fill up the coach and probably buy a spring roll or something, and you're off. And it, you're in the coach for two days. You know, to get, really, you're in the coach for the best part, you know. You're not there in the morning, it's like the next morning. You know, it's a long, it was a long old trip, I remember. And I noticed there's a lot of blokes in there, more than, more than usual. And there was at least 10, probably 11, a little bit more. And their stories were very similar. They'd left their wives and were going over to Perth, right? Because we had no computers in those days and they couldn't be traced, they could get married again. There was, there's no follow through. So if they buggered up in, in Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide, they only had to get on a coach and go to Perth and no one's heard of them. And when I arrived in Perth, I had nowhere to go or nothing to do. I just arrived in Perth. I didn't book nothing. But in those days, there was so much. You know, like, I, they dropped you off in Perth. I walked up, that was a hotel, very sick. I walk in, I got a room, yeah. You know, who are you? Oh, I'm Colin Stoke from Sydney. I was a cocktail barman, hotel manager in Sydney. Oh, then they, get, they made me an offer straight away. They, you know, 
oh, if you come here, you know, you can stay, I can stay for, because I'm looking for somewhere to stay, and stay for nothing, if you come and work for us for three days, then I get a job in the Swan Brewery. It just was so much easier then than it is now, because they needed people. But I also then, from Perth, I was getting these really homesick letters. And a lie. You, you shouldn't say anything about anything not being. This is reality. This is... If you look right over there, That first experience when everything turned into Lego was really good and it was like the getting stoned introduced me to this version of reality that exists all the time that you can access by getting fucked up and since then I have been to the same version of reality using different drugs and it's somewhere that mushrooms take me to it's, it's like it's the same place and it's like this familiar oh I know this place this is like the world except everything's nice and fun and it's I find it really interesting that the that it's it's almost like it's a real place that is accessible by taking this mind-altering stuff that what we call reality like normal reality is just one of the many versions of reality. It's one of the many versions of what you can experience and call reality. I mean, if you're schizophrenic, then what you experience is just as real to you as, uh, I don't know, a, a very sane, calm banker in a tower block in London who whose reality could, could just be on paper very ordinary, but it's arguably just as ordinary as anyone else's reality. So, like a tribes person in the jungle, that they're experiencing reality, and they would definitely tell you that that's what they're experiencing, because it's reality to them, but it wouldn't make any sense to your version of reality which may not make any sense to my version of reality. But that kind of makes you question what is reality anyway. And that's a really difficult question to answer, isn't it? <laughs> and much more difficult if you've taken loads of hallucinogenics in the past because you'll never be quite sure again. But, you know, I sort of think that talk has become rather cheap, you know. The actual value of talking something through and getting it straight in your head so you, can, you can't change things, you can't change the past, that's for sure. You can certainly come to terms with it, and that's all therapists of any discipline or mode would want to do, is to help you come to terms with it so it stops ruining your life. I mean, I've been in psychoanalysis, I believe in psychoanalysis, I believe in the psychoanalytic... Um, 
dog just sneezed. I believe in the psychoanalytic process of music therapy, of which I'm part of that music therapy school. So I do believe in sitting around talking about your feelings, thinking about your feelings, working through them. But I believe in doing it meaningfully in the presence of a trained person who can help you. I don't believe in it as a form of entertainment, and I think that's what it's become. People's feelings have become a form of entertainment. And for me, I suppose I've accepted that I have these feelings, yes. Um, and that has been an extremely long process. And I would say it's still ongoing. But it's, um, it's a bit like with everything, that if you experience something often enough, you get used to it. And then it just becomes part of you. I went through a phase of just being more, also being more positive in embracing things, to not just focus on the negative, actually, because it, um, it highlights how important it is to do things and not just put them off. So when people have said to me before now, you know, um, do you not think it's awful? that you've been diagnosed with this. And I'm saying, well, it sort of is, but it also isn't in a way. And people find this, most people find this really bizarre, but in a way I consider myself quite lucky because I've been given the chance to evaluate and actually appreciate every day and do things when I want to do them and if it's possible that I can, and not just put them off. You know, all those things that people go on about, all the things they want to do with their lives, and they will put them off until they, oh, when I'm retired, I will do this. When I'm, you know, uh, I'll wait until the children are grown up, and then I will do X, Y, Z, you know. Um, all of those things, I've been given the chance to actually evaluate now and say, no, this, this is what I want to do. And there is an urgency to get this done because I don't know, you know, from, the, from one day to the next how I will be. And of, yes, I mean, things have progressed quite slowly, but I've had some awful times in between. And it highlights the fact that you should just not just sit by and watch your life go by. And for that, actually, I'm quite grateful. I helped my dad out with money so we'd have enough for him and his, my mum to come back. And when I eventually, because they, they got on to me and I kept getting letters, oh, we miss you, oh, come on, um, we got your room ready, son, and all this sort of thing. And they were sort of persuading me to come back. And when I come back, I was really not happy the way they were living because it wasn't a nice flat. I had a nice modern flat, you know, over there, that I, I, which, which wasn't expensive, you, could, you know, I just rented a flat and bought, bought my own furniture, unfurnished, you know, bought nice new furniture and all that, because you, you get the wages out there to, to do it, and you get better money out there than what you're getting here. They come back here, the wages, boom, down again, because you're back in this country, worse wages, and then the accommodation's not that great, and the furniture's about 1940, you know, at that time, you know, old furniture and everything, and I think, God, what? And I looked up at the sky, and I thought, what the bloody hell am I doing back here? 
It's only because they kept on to me. Your room's ready, you stand there and all that. You come back. And I did have enough money in the pot when I arrived in England to turn around and come back immediately. When I come back here, I had no transport. So I did have a motorbike license from when I was 17. You know, when I worked in the hotel and everything, I had a little scooter, a uh, Lambretta, and I had all the wing mirrors on it and all the rest of it. And um, so when I come back, I bought one of them again. But then this scooter was 120 quid, so I ended up spending what I shouldn't have done with some of my fair money I could have gone back with. And uh, then I, I, having the scooter there, I need the job. And because I'd been in management, my father had contacts at that time with um, Thorny Island RAF base. And he said, I've got a son coming back from Australia. You know, he's you know, been a manager of a hotel. And I said, so we need someone here for the NAFI. And um, I became a NAFI, you know, a training manager, assistant manager, whatever, manager of a NAFI. Not the manager, because I was only then, even then I was still young. I was not even 21 then. Who flies a plane on their own? Who gets a train on their own? I know a lot of us drive cars on our own now. I mean, I do. I would oh, get on a bus if you paid me, frankly. But um, <laughs> you actually would have to pay me to come on the scene. I'm just not sitting that close to people. I'm just not. But most journeys are taken with other people. So this whole idea of it being my personal journey is balls. Because you don't. Your journey, your emotional process is interlinked with someone else's. The Goodwin Sands Radiogram was conceived, written and produced by Ben Horner with additional material by Peter Kelly. Music was improvised by Sam Bailey on piano and other things, Oliver Perrettwell on guitar and Adam Hilmy on the radios. The announcer was Peter Kelly. We thank you for joining us on this special live edition and look forward to the pleasure of your company next time. We will leave you with a few final thoughts from one of our more voluble contributors, in the meantime, it's goodbye from everyone, landlubbers and sea dogs here at Free Range in Canterbury, and we wish you, as always, a very pleasant evening. I met my wife on Thorny Island, and I said, I'm going back to Australia. I said, I've got a tax rebate coming. This tax rebate, in Australia got a tax rebate coming. I said, with that, I'll save a little bit with that. I've bought the scooter now, but we, we're going to Australia. She said, oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's lovely. I've gone to Australia. She was happy. She'd met her husband. You know, oh, will I marry you? Yeah, marry you. Yeah. You marry me. We're going to Australia. We're going to Australia. Yeah, we're going to Australia. The day after I married her, she said, I'm not going to Australia. I thought, you bitch. I've been married to her 50 years. Lovely lady. But I thought, you I'm not going to Australia. Well, your dad came back and your brother came back and they said it wasn't that good and all that thing, so I'm not going to. Hang on a minute. I just freaking married you. You said you're going to Australia. I want to go back to Australia. They came back. That's their freaking fault. I'm going back to Australia. It's their fault. I'm back here now because they kept saying, you know, your room's ready, Sunner, and all your stuff's there and we've got it all ready. Your stereo's in the corner and all that, you know, whatever. So she wouldn't go back. And now, we've been married 50 years, you asked her now, where do you go and go on holiday? I think we're going on holiday in Australia. I think you're a bitch again. 
It's got Australia now. Bit bloody late in it after 50 years. Jesus. <laughs> there you are then. She's still a lovely girl. No, they, you weren't there. How do you know that then? Was, do you know what? I was over there four years. I look around, I've never seen you fucking once. I watched you everywhere. Then, once you built and everything else. You're talking about now. Yes. Yeah, we're in the EU now and everything's fucking dear. They're not in the EU, right? They got more sheep than I can shit on, right? It's cheap over there. Hey, I went over there. And the first thing they put was a steak that fucking big. It filled the plate. I'm like, fuck, I've never seen a steak that big. T-bone steak. We all went out and all we, we gouged ourselves on T-bone steaks. And they were about 50 fucking P. They were really cheap. You know, you've had that recorded. Thank you. There were loads of people here. I turned around and I was really surprised to see you all. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for coming and listening. And I hope it wasn't too sweary. It was quite sweary, wasn't it? Uh, can I thank everybody again? Can we have another round of applause, please, for Sam Bailey? <laughs> Oliver Perrot Webb. Adam Hilmy. And the marvellous Peter Kelly. I haven't really, I haven't written anything to say this end of the programme, so um, thank you very much for coming. Uh, maybe we'll do it again next year, shall we? I don't know. That'd be a good idea. Oh, okay. All right, thank you. Uh, that being the case, I need some more victims to interview. <laughs> Seek you out. Okay. Uh, thank you very much again. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. Good night. So please, yeah, join me in giving a big round of applause to Ben Vaughan. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>